Today's reading is from the book of Jonah, chapter one. One day long ago, God's word came to Jonah, Amittai's son. Up on your feet and on your way to the big city of Nineveh, preach to them. They're in a bad way and I can't ignore it any longer. But Jonah got up and went the other direction to Tarshish, running away from God. He went down to the port of Joppa and found a ship headed for Tarshish. He paid the fare and went on board, joining those going to Tarshish as far away from God as he could get. But God sent a huge storm at, a huge storm at sea, the waves towering. The ship was about to break into pieces. The sailors were terrified. They called out in desperation to their gods. They threw everything they were carrying overboard to lighten the ship. Meanwhile, Jonah had gone down into the hold of the ship to take a nap. He was sound asleep. The captain came to him and said, what's this, sleeping? Get up, pray to your God. Maybe your God will see we're in trouble and rescue us. Then the sailors said to one another, let's get to the bottom of this. Let's draw straws to identify the culprit on this ship who's responsible for this disaster. So they drew straws. Jonah got the short straw. Then they grilled him. Confess, why this disaster? What is your work? Where do you come from? What country? What family? He told them, I'm a Hebrew. I worship God, the God of heaven who made sea and land. At that, the men were frightened, really frightened, and said, what on earth have you done? As Jonah talked to the sailors, realized that he was running away from God. They said to him, what are we going to do with you to get rid of the storm? By this time, the sea was wild, totally out of control. Jonah said, throw me overboard into the sea, then the storm will stop. It's all my fault. I'm the cause of the storm. Get rid of me and you'll get rid of the storm. But no, the men tried rowing back to shore. They made no headway. The storm only got worse and worse wild and raging. Then they prayed to God. Oh God, don't let us drown because of this man's life and don't blame us for his death. You are God, do what you think is best. They took Jonah and threw him overboard. Immediately the sea was quieted down. The sailors were impressed, no longer terrified by the sea, but in awe of God. They worshiped God, offered a sacrifice and made vows. Then God assigned a huge fish to swallow Jonah. Jonah was in the fish's belly three days and nights. This is the word of the Lord. Face you or flee. It's not that I don't hear your voice. I've always heard it clearly. It's the believing, leaving, following I fear. Those faraway places fill me with trepidity. Yet you say go. Stubbornness, contentedness, and laziness addictively hold me back, distract from whatever fullness you always promise. But who are you to be trustworthy? Thieves run free and the oppressed stay depressed. The rich reap wealth and the poor pay the penalties. Yet in this wicked world, you've kept every promise to me. Your ubiquitousness has expelled loneliness from my soul. Never have I once felt alone. So in this in-between, I face you or flee. Go where you point or sail the high seas. Trust you or not, these and many questions abound. But in the meantime, I run from the answers. May I one day be found. Before I talk about Jonah today, um, I want to talk about something else real quick. 
I want to talk about uh, two shootings in 13 hours, uh, one in El Paso, Texas, and, and one in Dayton, Ohio, uh, while many of us slept. At least 20 people lost their lives in El Paso, and at least nine were killed in Dayton in less than the minute it took to take down the shooter. Uh, these two shootings happened only days after one in Gilroy, California, that claimed three more lives. A few weeks ago, I shared some of my story as part of my sermon, and among the things I named that I discovered upon moving to the U.S. 13 years ago was our country's sick addiction to guns. In 23 years of living in Hong Kong and Great Britain, do you know how many mass shootings occurred while I was there? Zero. In 23 years. In the first seven and a bit months of 2019, we've already had at least 10. It doesn't have to be this way. Our nation's gun sickness is not good news to any of the 60-plus families who've lost loved ones and the countless others who've been wounded and traumatized by the experience. And while I wish I didn't have to talk about this every time a shooting happened, I also don't feel like I can proclaim the kingdom of God as a pastor and a preacher without also naming the kingdoms and idols that stand against God's kingdom. I also need to mention that it seems that at least one of the shooters had as his stated mission the goal of fighting what he called the Hispanic invasion of Texas, namely by getting rid of immigrants. This racism and xenophobia was cultivated within a culture of white supremacy, fueled by language from the highest office in the land and enabled by many of our lawmakers. I shouldn't have to say this, but sadly I feel I need to. The gospel of Jesus Christ is a gospel of life a gospel of hope, a gospel of crossing differences in order to unite in love. And as such, the gospel of Jesus and his kingdom condemn racism, xenophobia, and white supremacy as antichrist, and they are to be actively resisted in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Spirit. Will you join me in praying for those who are grieving and for our nation? Jesus, you said that you came to bring life and bring life to the full, and yet we, we get in your way so many times. We, we get in our own way. And God, I, I know that your, your heart breaks um, when image bearers are mown down, when people you died to save Take each other's lives. And God, things like this can be overwhelming. They can seem like we, we have no, no recourse for action, no way to solve this. Um, there are ways, God, but, but even in those ways, Lord, we come to you first because you are bigger than all of them. You are greater than any mountain, any obstacle, any sin, any brokenness. You are greater than death. And so, Lord, in particular, we want to remember those who are grieving this weekend and those who are uncertain because they don't know what has still happened. We pray your comfort and your presence with them. We pray your consolation. We pray your peace as they grieve. God, move us to whatever action is ours to take so that we might see more of your kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. For we pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.
Today we, uh, we start a new series, um, but before I talk about the new series, let me encourage you, if you missed the last couple of weeks, to, to go back and listen to that series. That was, we just finished my most important question, um, where every year we get to hear from members of our community about their biggest struggle of faith. Uh, it's always so encouraging and inspiring and, and even convicting to me to hear the ways that, that you have stewarded and are stewarding the journeys that you are on. This week, we kick off a four-week series on the book of Jonah in the Old Testament. Uh, there are four chapters in Jonah and four weeks in four Sundays in August, so our plan is to do one chapter a week. Uh, today, I'll be talking about chapter three. I'm just kidding. I'll be starting with chapter one, <laughs> just seeing who was with me. So we're talking about Jonah, and, and without letting the subtitle of our sermon series influence your answer, what comes to mind when you think of the story of Jonah? What words, what images, what feelings? Just shout them out. Fish. Whale. Bad luck. Disobedience. Grumpy. Patience. Running away. Veggie tails. Before I, uh, that's, that's really helpful. Um, <laughs> I, I, it's good to know where, where y'all are at before I, I jump in. Um, before I give some background and introduction to Jonah, I want to ask you to turn to your neighbor and for just a couple minutes answer this question. How would you or someone you know describe God in three words? How would you or someone you know describe God in three words? And I put that, ad that addition there, someone you know, because some of us might, uh, some of the words that we might use aren't positive words, and I don't, I want to, you know, give you the freedom to say those without, you know, a friend said this. Um, so three words, God, uh, how would you describe God in three words, preferably three separate words and not like a mini sentence? I know how some of you are trying to get around this. Um, so three words to describe God. Two minutes, go. With, with the disclaimer that even if you say a word, we are not going to judge you for saying that word because it might be a friend. What are some words that you might use to describe God? Gracious. Gracious. Hate. Hate. Powerful. Powerful. Mysterious. Mysterious. What was that? Confusing. Confusing. Loving. Loving. Demanding. Demanding. Faithful. Faithful. <coughs> Vindictive, merciful, merciful. Yeah. just, emotional, any from over here? Unknowable, Unknowable. fierce, fierce. Forgiving. forgiving, sense of humor, sense of hu oh, there you go, Lori, <laughs> mini sentence. Um, the reason I wanted to start with this question, how would you describe God in three words, and, is because I want us to be asking ourselves what kind of God we believe in. What kind of God do we believe in? What is God like? Because our perception of God affects our perception of God's world, what kind of world we live in, and our perception of ourselves as image bearers, as reflections of this God. And my hope as we go through these next four weeks is that we might, through the story of Jonah, come to better understand God so that we might also better understand our world and ourselves and maybe even be challenged or invited to a better way of living 
fuller, more authentic existence even. Before I unpack some of the text of Jonah 1, let me give you some background. Jonah is considered a prophet. Sometimes he's called the reluctant prophet or the disobedient prophet or the bad prophet. But actually, Jonah is never called a prophet in this book, although he is called by God. Where he is called a prophet is in 2 Kings 14, the only other reference to Jonah in the Old Testament. It says this, In the fifteenth year of King Amaziah, son of Joash of Judah, which was the southern kingdom, King Jeroboam, son of Joash of Israel, the northern kingdom, began to reign in Samaria, which was the capital. He reigned 41 years. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all of the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, who was the first king of Israel, which he caused Israel to sin. He restored the border of Israel from Lebo Hamath as far as the Sea of the Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, son of Amittai, the prophet who was from Gath Hefer. So the prophet Jonah lived during the reign of King Jeroboam II of Israel, the northern kingdom. We have a map of just uh, of, the, of the kingdoms of Israel. So Judah was the southern kingdom and Israel was the northern kingdom. It split after the reign of King Solomon. So Jonah lived during the reign of King Jeroboam II of Israel, the northern kingdom, about 700 years before Christ. Now there are a couple of things about Jonah that should give us pause. For one thing, Jeroboam II was not a good king. Right? He, he did not worship God and he led the nation to sin. The Bible tells us for over 40 years. And yet this corrupt ruler also regained territory that had been lost. It says, from Labo Hamath as far as the Sea of the Arabah. And he did so apparently because of what God said through the prophet Jonah. Okay? And yet in the book of Amos, another prophet who also served during the reign of Jeroboam II, God says this, Indeed, I am raising up against you a nation, O house of Israel, says the Lord, the God of hosts, and they shall oppress you from Labo Hamath, to the Wadi Arabah. It's the same territory that Jeroboam just won back. So you have Amos and Jonah seemingly prophesying opposing fortunes for Israel. It's an interesting point number one. Interesting point number two, most prophetic books in the Bible, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Amos, and so on, record the words of God through the prophet, sometimes to the kingdom of Israel in the north, sometimes to the kingdom of Judah in the south, sometimes to a foreign nation. But the book of Jonah actually focuses more on the person of Jonah and his response and his character than it does on the words of God. So again, there's something about this that should give us pause. What we're about to experience over these next four weeks is not as straightforward as we may think. And in fact, to play my hand right at the beginning, every character in this story does the opposite of what would have been expected by the listeners of the day, to an almost comical extent. And then there's the book itself, which is structured very carefully and intentionally, very, very poetically. There are four parts, four chapters. Chapters one and three are primarily Jonah's interactions with others, while chapters two and four are primarily about Jonah's interactions with God. There's a rhythm there. There's a literary back and forth. And so all of these factors, the structure, the humor, the irony, the literary devices, the exaggerated subverting of expectations, actually lead many theologians to conclude that while the prophet Jonah was a real person, the book of Jonah was more likely to have been satire, 
or parable rather than a historical story. Now, I grew up being taught that everything in the Bible happened word by literal word. I grew up with the presumption that if I didn't believe that everything in the Bible happened or that everything in the Bible was historical fact, then maybe I didn't believe that the Bible was the inspired word of God or that Jesus was real. And down that slippery slope I would go. But when we think about it, a story doesn't have to be historical fact for it to be true, does it? When Jesus told the parable of two sons, one who squandered his inheritance and came back in repentance, and the other who stayed but stewed in self-righteousness, was he telling the real-life story of a family he knew? Or was there actually a shepherd who left 99 of his sheep to go look for the one that was lost? Arguing that sort of misses the point, right? Or if we go to Song of Songs, is there really a woman whose eyes are doves? Actual doves. <laughs> and whose hair is an actual flock of goats. And whose teeth are actual sheep. And I'll stop there before I keep going. <laughs> My point is that treating the Bible responsibly, rightly receiving and holding the words of God includes understanding that something doesn't have to be fact in order to be true. Was Jonah a real figure in history? Most likely, yes. Did he make the trip described here in chapter 1? Maybe. Did he really get swallowed by a big fish? Maybe. By the way, my brother-in-law, Tim, uh, alerted me to the fact that earlier this year, a diver off the coast of South Africa was briefly caught in the jaws of a whale. Here's his flipper, and here's his backside. It was just for a few seconds, because the whale was, uh, I think, like a, not like a filter feeder, but like a filter feeder, so we couldn't actually... Anyway. <laughs> like I said, my point is, I think a more responsible handling of Scripture and a more responsible reading of the story, based on the things I mentioned before is that this is satire or parable rather than historical fact. But what that should do is that should make us even more eager to figure out the point of it. So let's look at the text. Uh, we heard it read earlier from the message, but I'll be unpacking it from the NRSV. Jonah chapter 1, verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, saying, Go at once to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah set out to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid his fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Instead of going east to Nineveh, Jonah goes west to Joppa so he can go even further west to Tarshish. Now, different theologians and archaeologists have proposed that Tarshish was in Turkey or maybe southern Spain or Tunisia. We have a map of if, if it was in southern Spain, it was a, a, a decent way away. Others have noted that the name Tarshish actually means open sea. And on these grounds, Rabbi Sheldon Blank offers this interpretation. What is Tarshish? In this story, it is anywhere, anywhere but the right place. It is the opposite direction. The direction a person takes when he or she turns their back on their destiny. It is the excuse we give, our rationalizations. Nineveh was inland. Tarshish, open sea, was the opposite direction. 
When we read that Jonah was trying to flee from the presence of the Lord, we know it's figurative, right? We, we know that God is not limited by time and space. We, we, we responded in the confession with the words of Psalm 139. There's nowhere we could go that God would not already be. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and settle at the farthest limits of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me fast. The point is that Jonah was running away from God. Jonah is doing the opposite of what God has asked him to do. God calls him to go east to Nineveh and cry out against it. Jonah doesn't say a word, but he goes west to anywhere but there. Why? Was Jonah just a bad prophet? Should people who've named their kids Jonah be worried that he's actually not someone to emulate? I don't think we have to go that far just yet. Jonah ran not because God gave him something to do. Jonah ran because of what God gave him to do. Go at once to Nineveh, that great city, and by great he means big, not awesome, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. The ruins of Nineveh can be found sitting on one side of the river Tigris, just across from the modern city of Mosul in Iraq. Some of the gates were even restored before ISIL destroyed them in 2016. Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian Empire, the dominant power of the time. Being the dominant power of the time, I think we have a map of the, the, the empire, how, how far it stretched at the height of its power. Being the dominant power of the time, it meant that you had conquered everyone else. In other words, defeated them with military might, subjugated them, and forced them to submit. A hundred years after Jonah, the prophets Zephaniah and Nahum, both speaking after the Assyrian Empire had actually destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel, those prophets proclaimed God's judgment against them. This is what they said, Zephaniah, And he, God, will stretch out his hand against the north and destroy Assyria, and he will make Nineveh a desolation, a dry waste like the desert. Is this the exultant city that lived secure, that said to itself, I am and there is no one else? And Nahum, because of the countless debaucheries of the prostitute, gracefully alluring mistress of sorcery who enslaves nations through her debaucheries and peoples through her sorcery, I'm against you, says the Lord of hosts. There is no assuaging your hurt. Your wound is mortal. All who hear the news about you clap their hands over you, for who has ever escaped your endless cruelty? Now, if we hear that and we think that God might be being a bit harsh, we may not get how bad the Assyrians were. And because I'm not sure it's always easy to understand how violent and cruel things could be several thousand years, there's an account of what the Assyrians would do. Some graphic content. If enemies resisted surrender during the siege of their city, once defeated, the population would be horribly mutilated and slaughtered. Their houses and towns would be torn down and burned, and the flayed skins of their corpses prominently displayed on stakes. A strong warning to others who might think of resisting. Public amusement was provided by leading survivors by a leash attached to a ring inserted through their lip. Vanquished nobles were paraded through the city of Nineveh with the decapitated heads of their princes hanging around their necks while merry tunes were played to entertain the public. Jewish writer Chaim Lewis concludes, For Jonah, Nineveh was no ordinary city. It stood as a symbol of evil incarnate. Two other scholars put it this way. 
To go, to go to Nineveh means for Jonah to go to hell. When we begin to understand why Jonah ran away, we may be beginning to grasp just how evil and depraved Assyria was. But there's another element. If you don't understand the feeling of anger, the yearning for justice and vengeance even that we hear in the prophet's words, Zephaniah and Nahum, it may be because of privilege. Because those feelings are often the experience of the oppressed and the marginalized. Ethicist Miguel de la Torre poses the question that Jonah may well have been turning over in his mind, which is how can we relate to those who bring subjugation, misery, and death to our people, our loved ones, and ourselves? How? And yet that is the right question. How, not should. Because our God calls us to love even our enemies, even our oppressors. Writer Anne Lamott puts it this way, you can safely assume you've created God in your own image when it turns out that God hates all the same people you do. But if we're being honest, loving those it's hard to love is, well, hard. And in that light, Jonah runs in the way that we all run from doing the right thing when doing the right thing is really, really hard. What for you is the right thing to do that seems at the same time the hardest thing. What for you is the right thing to do that seems at the same time the hardest thing? What is God asking of you that you're running from? Going west instead of east, heading to the open sea instead of inland, Tarshish instead of Nineveh. Maybe it is some evil that God is asking us to confront, some power that God is asking us to stand up to. Maybe it is an injustice that must be cried out against. Reading the news this weekend has offered plenty of examples. White supremacy and racism, gun violence, xenophobia, family separations, authoritarianism. But maybe it's not on a grand geopolitical level. Maybe it's on a personal one. Maybe like Jonah, God is asking you to go somewhere. Or maybe what God is asking you is actually to stay someplace. May well be all of the above. To do the right thing in every area of our lives. Maybe that's another way of thinking about God's kingdom coming in every life and every sphere of life. And then to rephrase the question I posed at the beginning, what kind of God would ask you to do the right but difficult thing? What kind of God? Let's continue with the story. Verse 4. The Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and such a mighty storm came upon the sea that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried to his God. They threw the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. Jonah, meanwhile, had gone down into the hold of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. The captain came and said to him, What are you doing sound asleep? Get up, call on your God. Perhaps the God will spare us a thought so that we do not perish. The sailors said to one another, Come, let us cast lots so that we may know on whose account this calamity has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. And then they said to him, Tell us why this calamity has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? This wouldn't have been a large boat, probably no more than a dozen crew members. And in the Mediterranean region, they would have had cargo of grain, olive oil, and wine. 
The storm hits and the boat is tossed about and the pagan sailors do everything they can think of. You just imagine the scene. Surely one of our gods can help us out. Everyone pray. Nope. Toss the cargo. That's practical. Maybe that'll help us out. Nothing's happening. Is everyone praying? What do you mean he's sleeping? <laughs> when none of those things work, they turn to casting lots. The, the closest equivalent, at least in the message, was drawing straws. I don't remember the last time I actually drew straws. Um, or flipping a coin to figure out who's responsible. Jonah draws the short straw. And so the sailors grill him. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? Basically, they're trying to find out any information that might help them understand why this storm is tearing them apart. A number of years ago, I realized that when I was younger and something bad would happen, my first instinctive thought would be that I'd done something wrong and God was punishing me. That was how I thought of God. Judge Almighty, ready to pounce, quick to punish, lightning bolt poised. And then for, for a brief season, I sort of swung to the other extreme. I thought of God as a permissive, uninvolved parent who couldn't care less about how I lived my life. Neither of those is true. Mature faith doesn't settle for simplistic formulations like good times equals hashtag, hashtag blessed and hard times equals punishment but it rather recognizes that the world and life are more complicated than that. Sometimes, as Jesus did on the Sea of Galilee, God calms the storm. The wind and waves still know his name as the song goes. But sometimes God brings the storm. Sometimes God needs to shake up our complacent lives. Sometimes God's trying to get through to us, but we, like Jonah, have gone down into the hold, into the center of the ship, and fallen asleep, completely ignorant of the cries of those struggling to survive and even to keep us alive. Sometimes God brings the storm. Now, I'm going to get a little bit nerdy here, but you'll see why in a moment, I hope. One of the literary devices that the author uses in chapter 1 is called a chiasm. Okay? Chiasm which is where ideas are mirrored in the text. A simple form of this is the this, this sentence, the saying, when the going gets tough, the tough get going. Okay, so it's got an A, B, B, A structure. Does that make sense? So A is going, B is tough. A, B, B, A. Or Jesus' words, the Sabbath was made for humankind, not humankind for the Sabbath. The chiasm here is more complex. It spans the whole chapter, all of Jonah 1. And it looks like this. A is, is sort of the setting up and the closing off of the story, the intro and the conclusion. B is about the storm, the storm building and then the storm stilling. Sometimes in literature, the chiasm points to a climax. That's the filling at the center of the sandwich. This is one way that authors highlight the most important part of the story. Can anyone see what verse is missing? Verse 9. What's the climax of the story? Jonah replied, I am a Hebrew. I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. 
Jonah only answers the last question the sailors ask of what people are you because the underlying question beneath that question is, who is your God? Who is your God? And to the pagan sailors who worshiped local tribal deities and gods of one element of the world, sun, moon, earth, Jonah replies, I worship the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and dry land. In Hebrew, the words are, are translated, tra- transliterated as Yahweh. The name so holy that most Jews won't even say it, but instead they'll say Adonai. It means the Lord. And Elohim, meaning God of gods, the God of heaven, the one true God, the God of Israel and the God of gods. That's, uh, that's what Jonah says. I worship the God of Israel and the God over all gods, the one who made the sea and the dry land. That's who Jonah worships, apparently, because he doesn't seem to be doing that right then. Note that there's still no mention of Jonah praying to his God. But this God is at the center of this story. This God is at the center of every story, whether we are aware of it or not. Verse 10, then the men were even more afraid. And they said to him, what is this you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them so. And then the pagan non-believers asked him what they should do. And he said to them, pick me up, throw me into the sea, and then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great storm has come upon you. Here's the thing. We know what happens next because we've heard this story before. But while Jonah knows that he is the reason for the storm, he doesn't know that God's got a fish taxi waiting to pick him up. (laughs) As far as he knows, throwing him into the sea means death, which is to say he would rather die than do the hard thing. This is the opposite of what a prophet should do, isn't it? Jonah tells the sailors to throw him into the waves because he knows God is after him. But what do the sailors, these small-minded pagan sailors with their little carved gods and local deities, what do they do? They, They rode hard to bring the ship back to land. They do everything they can to save Jonah. But when they realize they can't get back, they pray to Yahweh. They pray to Jonah's God. They say, please don't let us die for taking this man's life. The regret and remorse that they show is in stark contrast to Jonah, the prophet of the Lord, who's just like, yeah, throw me in. I ain't turning around. So they picked Jonah up and threw him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. And then the men feared the Lord even more, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Fear of the Lord is not being afraid of God. It is to be in awe of God. It is to respect God's power and otherness. The paradox of God is that God is both transcendent, other, holy, beyond, majestic, causing the Isaiah the prophet to cry out, woe is me, I am lost for I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips and yet my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And at the same time, God is nearer nearer to us than the breath that we're breathing. Imminent, intimate, knowable, friend who is closer than a sibling. Each of us is probably tempted to prefer one of these truths about God. I believe in a God who made the universe, but I'd prefer if he stayed out of my life. 
Or Jesus is my buddy, but I've never been in awe of him. What kind of God do you believe in? Because what you believe about God affects what you believe about our world and about yourself. God is at the center. The God revealed in Jonah 1 issues a call to confront wickedness, to do the right thing even when it is hard. The God revealed in Jonah 1 pursues us even when we don't want to do the right thing, even when we try to close ourselves off from God. And the God revealed in Jonah 1 works through the example and the effort of those we might least expect it from. 700 years after Jonah, three miles away from Jonah's hometown of Gath Hefer, there was a town called Nazareth. And the man who came to save the world came from that unexpected town in the unexpected form of a poor carpenter of an oppressed population. And this man Jesus also issued a call to confront wickedness and led by example, challenging laws that dehumanized defending the vulnerable against the powerful, restoring the marginalized to society and to community, overturning tables of corruption. This Jesus did the right thing even though it was hard. Loved his enemies, turned the other cheek, drank the cup of suffering, submitted himself to his Father's will even to death on the cross so that we all, we who try to close ourselves off from God, might be brought close to the one who made the sea and the dry land and every soul that inhabits this earth, and so that we all might have life to the full. Because this Jesus came to show us what God is like. Because in Jesus, all of the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Because when we look at Jesus, we see God. And when we know Jesus, we know God. Not the God of our own devices, our own prejudices, our own fears and anxieties, but the God of the universe who is both transcendent and imminent, both holy, other, and here with us right now. 20th century Austrian philosopher Martin Buber said that the fear of God, the awe of God, and the love of God are inseparable. He said, fear of God is the dark gate through which one must pass if one is to enter into the love of God. One who wishes to avoid passing through this gate one who begins to provide for themselves a comprehensible God, constructed thus, this way, and not otherwise, runs the risk of having to despair of God in view of the actualities of history and life or of, failing, of falling into inner falsehood. In other words, if we believe in a God that looks exactly like us, that hates the people we hate and loves the people we love, a God who never asks us to do the right thing even when we don't want to, we have constructed a comprehensible God, a God our size, who, if we're being honest, will be no help in the trials and tribulations of life. But the alternative, that is to let God be God so vast and holy and incomprehensible and indescribable that we might not even have the words to express the feelings that we have, but we might only be able to fall on our faces in awe and wonder. And with this God, we will no longer be in control. Jonah wanted to maintain control. He chose to go another direction. 
He chose to pay for a ship going to the open sea. He chose to sleep through the storm. He chose to kill himself rather than obey God and do the right thing. He wanted to maintain control, which we all do. But that's a losing battle even if you don't believe in God. Martin Buber closes that quotation with this line. He says, only through the fear of God, not the awe of God, does a person enter so deep into the love of God that they cannot again be cast out of it? Only through the fear and awe of God does a person enter so deep into the love of God that they cannot again be cast out of it. Only a God beyond our control and our comprehension is great enough to have a love that is beyond our control and our comprehension, a love we cannot be cast out of and from which nothing can separate us. What kind of God do you believe in? What kind of world do you live in? What kind of person are you called to be? The three are inseparable. Over the next few weeks, my, my hope is that each of us might see the story of Jonah as a story of God's love. That we might discover this great, as big and awesome God of love and that we might experience that love in our own lives. Would you pray with me? God, it's easy for us to, uh, to point at somebody else and, and what they did or didn't do and uh, assume that we'd do it better. It's easy for us to look at Jonah and be like, see? I would have done it better. I would have listened. I would have gone. I would have obeyed. And then we find ourselves in, in our own spot of you asking us to do the right thing, to do the hard thing. And sometimes we do it, and sometimes we don't. When you ask us to, to choose the other person instead of ourselves, when you choose us to, to lay down our interests in, in view of somebody else, sometimes we do it. Sometimes we don't. When you ask us to speak out against injustice and evil, sometimes we do it and sometimes we don't. When you ask us to be like you in your love and your grace, sometimes we do it. Sometimes we don't. And God, so we ask you by your spirit to not just make up the difference between what we can do and what we can't do, but, but really just surround us with your presence so that our every breath, our every action, our every word, our every thought is already surrounded and encompassed by you and your love. so that our every friendship, our every interaction, our every relationship, our every piece of work is surrounded and encompassed by you, characterized by you. God, we're more like Jonah than we would like to admit. And yet you keep giving us opportunities. You keep pouring your grace out. And so help us to take 
those opportunities that you present to us, those invitations that you extend to us. We may not know all the answers. We may not have fearless, uh, we may not be, be fearless or, or have a fortitude that, that defies um, anxiety or worry, but help us to take your hand and take the next step. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you gladly chose to surrender, so will I. If you gave your life to love them, so will I. Eight billion precious ones. God, help us to follow you, to be like you, to represent you everywhere we go. Every word we say, every thought we think, every action we take, may it reflect you and your glory and your kingdom. Even when we don't know how we're going to do it. Even when we don't feel like we can. Even when we don't feel like we have the strength or the courage, or the wherewithal. You've got us. A God that is incomprehensible is also the God whose love is incomprehensible. And so let us rest in that this week. We pray these things in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit who surround us. Amen. Some of you may have noticed that I didn't uh, talk about the fish. That was verse 17. Verse 17 serves as the springboard, the cliffhanger, the teaser for next week's message. Jonah didn't die, but the Lord provided a large fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. The only thing I'll say about this verse is this. In the ancient script of the time, called cuneiform, the ancient script, one of the earliest forms of writing, the symbol for Nineveh, the city that Jonah was sent to, the symbol for Nineveh was a fish inside a house. What does it mean? <laughs> Come back next week and you might find out. <laughs>